The following program is a presentation of Grand Slam Ministries. Hi again, everybody. Welcome to episode 45 of the cleverly titled Dan Scott Show. For those of you who are new, I call it that so I don't forget the name. It's good to be with you. We are presented, as always, by Grand Slam Ministries, our 501c3 nonprofit organization. Happy to have you along, and man, we've got a great show for you today. Jay Warner Wallace is a former cold case detective, many, many years as a police officer who was an atheist. Someone got him interested in the resurrection, and he decided to use his investigative skills as a cold case detective to try and determine if the resurrection was real. Well, you know, if he's on this show, what his conclusion was. He turned from atheism, gave his life to Christ, has written a number of books, but the first one was Cold Case Christianity, and he's got a brand new update to that book, which I have a copy of and am really just starting to get into now. It is an incredible resource for anyone who wants to improve their ability to defend the faith, and you don't have to be an expert but uh, this is just a great, great resource. Very excited about this because it's Jay Warner Wallace this week. It's Lee Strobel next week, and we'll talk more about that a little bit later on. Good to have you with us, whether you're listening on the Life FM Network on Saturday mornings or you're listening on our other affiliates throughout the day on Sunday. Thank you for tuning in. We want to go ahead and jump to a break because this interview is rather long and I want to give it all the time that we can and still have some time on the back end. So we'll step aside, let you hear something about Grand Slam Ministries and come back and get into our interview with Jay Warner Wallace right after this. Grand Slam Ministries exists to glorify Jesus Christ in multiple ways through this radio show and its accompanying online digital, and video components through our sister websites, danscottshow.org and grandslamministries.org. And through furthering our core missions, mentorship, and providing food and other necessities to children. None of this is possible without your prayers and support. By making a gift to Grand Slam Ministries today, you'll not only help this program remain on this radio station, You'll help us grow our family of stations, allowing us to bring stories of God working in the lives of men and women everywhere to a larger audience. And at the same time, your gift will help us in the initial launch of those core mission programs. Grand Slam Ministries is in its infancy. We need your support. Will you help us today? Visit our website at grandslamministries.org and prayerfully consider a one-time or monthly gift today. Above and beyond anything else, please pray for our ministry. Thank you, and God bless. Follow us on social media. Search Grand Slam Ministries on Facebook and Grand Slam for God on Twitter. 
And don't forget Dan's personal and public figure sites on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You're listening to The Dan Scott Show, presented by Grand Slam Ministries. It is episode 45 of The Dan Scott Show. Thank you for joining us today. Just a reminder to all of you that you can access everything that we've done in the show archives in a couple of ways. The easiest way is to go to our website, danscottshow.org, and uh, navigate to the Affiliates and Archives page. You can find uh, out where the show is airing live on Saturdays and Sundays, perhaps on a station near you. But then there's also access to the podcast archive and every show that we have done since we started back in January is there for you to go back and listen to and check out some of the wonderful guests that we've had on the program. If you prefer to do it via a podcast site, just search Dan Scott show, wherever you get your podcasts, we are pretty much everywhere. Now, let's get right into this one because Jay Warner Wallace was a guy that I targeted that I wanted to get on this program early on, and we were able to make it happen. His book, Cold Case Christianity, uh, about 10 years ago, burst onto the scene, brought him into prominence, if you will, in the world of Christendom, and especially when it comes to apologetics and defending the faith. Incredible story, a former atheist who used his investigative skills, and that led him to Christ. It was a marvelous conversation, which you are going to hear now, and we began our talk with uh, his work currently for the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Well, Colson Center for Christian Worldview, uh, Chuck Colson, if you remember him, he was a, a great advocate for the Christian Worldview and and really start probably known most famously, at least for people online or maybe listen to the radio from his Breakpoint Minute where he was on so many different networks talking about cultural issues. And 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 this is now John Stone Street has taken over this ministry. And I get a chance to train up fellows. Uh, these are just people who can actually apply to the fellows program where they can learn uh, how to articulate a Christian world, how to defend and articulate a Christian world. As a matter of fact, uh, I would suggest anyone who's interested in doing such a thing, it's a very rigorous uh, course of study, but really worth it. And and we've got fellows all over the country who are now teaching in their churches, teaching in the in the school districts, teaching in their in their kids' Christian school, uh, and are really prepared and equipped to defend a Christian worldview. And they get great training. They have to read a lot of books, uh, but it's something that's worth doing. And we meet once a year at a big banquet. And I think it's something that if you're interested in learning how to defend the Christian worldview, Colson Center or just Breakpoint, you can go to either one of those two websites and learn more about us. Do you find that Christians who, who maybe are not headed down that road academically are intimidated by the idea of apologetics or intimidated by the idea of defending the faith, uh, defending the Christian worldview? Yeah, I think they are, but they don't need to be because they are not intimidated about defending their local sports team. As a matter of fact, they're very well equipped and prepared to do that. They've been reading the paper. They've been reading their the, the, their phones. They are in fantasy football leagues. They're, they're all over the – that they are really intentional about how they prepare to assemble those leagues. I mean, we, so many of us are prepared to defend something. It's just that we're not prepared to defend the most important beliefs we hold, which if, if Christianity is true, as C.S. Lewis used to say, if it's not 
true, it's of no importance. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Yet most of us treat it as though it's just part of our identity, but not, we're not, we're like being in Christ is like one thing we're into, but it's not as though it's the thing that governs our thoughts or that, that pushes us to study. And if you really want me to know what it is you're, you worship, show me what you study. Because it turns out that's where you're devoted. Your thoughts are leading me to your God. And if it's something that is, you know, show me your podcast list. Show me what you're reading. Show me, show me what you're talking about. What, what kind of headspace is, is, you know, what is filled in the headspace in terms of your thoughts. Those are the things that really reveal what it is we worship. And so for most of us, you know, I get it. We, we are not equipped to defend the thing that we say is the most important thing, which doesn't make much sense if you really think about it. Billy Graham used to say, and I've heard him say it, I can't tell you how many times, that every person has to make a decision about Jesus Christ, that he's either a liar, he was a lunatic who thought he was the Son of God, or he is who he claimed to be. Those are the only three options, and and you have to make that decision about Christ. And then once you decide who Christ is, that is how you go about that next phase that we're talking about now. Yeah, and that's a Lewisism too. C.S. Lewis, Lord, Light, uh, Liar, or Lunatic, or Lord. Uh, that is really the options you have um, in terms of what, if he's a liar, of course, we don't, we don't want to follow liars. And if he, the kinds of claims he made, he, he as, uh, as Lewis would say, he'd be like crazy as, you know, to think he's a poached egg if he's, if he's making these kinds of claims and they're not true and he doesn't know they're not true, then he's an idiot. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a lunatic. Or he might just be making claims that he knows are true and they actually are true, in which case he would be Lord. And those three options really are the options that are available to us. And as I, you know, I think that it, for me, uh, I'm not somebody who uh, came in that way. I mean, I came in by investigating the evidence for this. But I, I think because I, I, that's how I became a Christian, it seems almost natural to me that I used to think, well, doesn't everyone? Doesn't everyone who becomes a Christian come in by examining whether or not this actually occurred? And to be honest, that's not the way most of us become Christians. We're going to talk about that path you took to get to where you are now, a, a path that got you there, I believe I read at age 35. But it wasn't always that way. In fact, I have seen you described in at least one of your biographies as a, quote, conscientious and vocal atheist at one juncture in your life. Is it, would that yeah, be well, accurate? I mean, it, yeah, and I think for a lot of us who, I mean, you see a lot of conscientious vocal atheists right now online. Um, when I was, uh, before I was a believer, those kinds of social media platforms simply were not available, but mm -hmm. your friends are available and your workmates are available. And most of the people I worked with uh, as an investigator um, were not Christians and didn't think much of people who, um, you know, most investigators hold a philosophically natural bias. You know, we're, we're looking at uh, causes for murders that are explained without demons or angels. You know, we're, we are looking for uh, material suspects. And I think that that inclination toward the material uh, prejudice really against the idea that anything outside of the material world could exist governs a lot of us. And it certainly did me. And the worst part was that the few Christians I knew did not seem to be equipped. They didn't seem to be thoughtful. They didn't seem to be the kind of people who who. Um, who weighed this man? They they had a, what I would call a, a completely blind faith, or they they put their their faith was because something happened in their lives. Now I, I actually think that every one of us is an evidentialist in the way we approach this, 
And so, for, for example, people will say, well, I, I'm a Christian because I had this experience that simply could not be explained any other way other than God exists, Christianity is true. So so for a lot of people, that's 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 a form of evidence for them. They had a direct experience, but it's an untested form of evidence. And, and if that's the way we're going to do this, where it's just about an experience, then you better also uh, accept whatever your Mormon friends tell you, because they've also had an experience that they say demonstrates that Mormonism is true. And Buddhists have had an experience that demonstrates that Buddhism is true. And everyone has had some kind of an experience. The question is, can we? How do we measure that? How do we know that experience is from God? That's the next step that most people just don't take. And then, to me, as I'm listening to this, then the next question becomes about faith, because we're told to believe by faith. Evidence is there. We read what the Bible says, and you're going to tell us about all the steps that you took. But faith obviously has to come into the equation because everything simply can't be explained. Well, and this is what you mean by the word faith. So from a biblical perspective, Jesus never asked anyone. He was a strict evidentialist. And we know that because he often would say, if you don't believe that what I'm telling you, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles I've worked in front of you. And when John the Baptist had a doubt and sent his disciples to Jesus, he didn't just tell them, hey, you know, you need to have faith. You need to go back and tell John he needs to have faith. What's wrong with him? I mean, he he knew he's my cousin. He baptized me. He saw the Spirit of God descend on me. To tell him to have more faith. No, instead he does three miracles in front of his disciples, John's disciples, and says, Go back and tell John what you just saw. That's an evidentialist who spends 40 days, according to Acts 1, after the resurrection, giving many convincing proofs. That's the word we use for evidence in the Greek, mm-hmm. to his disciples. And, and remember, there's only two forms of evidence, direct evidence and indirect evidence. Direct evidence is eyewitness testimony. And he basically said, hey, to John, to Thomas, who said, you know, blessed are you, Thomas, for seeing this finally and believing. But blessed are those, even more so, who, who, who don't get to see this yet believe. How? Through Thomas's testimony. That's direct evidence, mm-hmm. an eyewitness. So you're not going to get away from the fact that Jesus is an evidentialist. Otherwise, he wouldn't wouldn't respond that way. He wouldn't stick around for four days giving many more convincing. What's the point? Just have faith. So it's not a blind belief. So what we do with the word faith is that it's the act we take at the end of the evidence trail, mm-hmm. because every evidence trail and every criminal trial I've ever worked, um, it stops short. I cannot answer every question you might have. We always tell jurors, I can. I'm going to tell you everything you need to know, but not everything that could be known. Because those are two different marks, and I, I I don't know all the answers to how he did it or why he did it. I just know that he did it. And so I can make the case for this, but you're going to have to step across the end of that evidence trail, which is the gap, which is called your unanswered questions. And if you're not the kind of person who can render a verdict with an open question, we're just going to excuse you. We can't put you on a jury because I've never been able to answer every question for a jury. So what we have to do instead is say that step is a step we call a verdict. You have to step at the end of the evidence trail across your unanswered questions. The same thing we do when it comes to faith. It's not blind. It's pointing to the very same suspect, but you're going to have some unanswered questions like we all do. You're going to step across those, a step of faith, but it's an informed faith. It's a forensic faith. It's one of the books I've written is forensic faith because that's the kind of faith that Jesus is calling us to. Otherwise, if, if you just take that step without having a measured faith that's evidentially responsible— that's what leads you to being a Mormon or to being any other kind of a Muslim. You can you can step up. If all it takes is a sincere, deep belief in some experience I can attribute to this deity, 
well, then don't complain with somebody or don't even try to reach people who had the same exact experience as you have with some other deity, right? Now, we would say they haven't measured it. There's At some point, all of us become evidentialists when we're trying to explain why we think that our experience is grounded in the truth of Christianity, while others are not grounded in truth. So I think in the end, that's why we have to be prepared to explain to people why this is true. I only know because I have so many Mormons in my family, all atheists and, and several Mormons. That's my family. And, and those Mormons, will try. They, they have a better testimony than you do, than all of us do, because that's an entirely testimony-driven worldview. Mm -hmm. So that's how you get in. And so if that's, you know, and it's about changed lives and how now I am such an obedient, uh, different kind of a person than I was before. Because let's face it, if your your salvation is dependent on your works, you will probably outwork those who don't think that their salvation is dependent on their works. And so I think in the end, they will outperform us and have better testimony. And that doesn't make it true, though. Right. So we have to make sure we understand why this is true. Jay Warner Wallace is our guest. Uh, the book that he, I think, is most famous for, Cold Case Christianity, uh, kind of put him on the... Uh, on the uh, the Christian radar, and we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. I, I want to go back, um, even before we get to to your individual path, um, I, I told somebody I was going to interview you uh, earlier this week, and we were talking about atheism. And, and the comment that this person made to me is they could not understand why atheists fought so hard to show how much they hate or they're against something they don't believe in. In other words, if it's not true, why do they fight against it so much? That's the question that I've heard, and I know you've heard it. Well, yeah, I mean, I have heard that. But but as an atheist, I'll tell you that it's not that... that, that so it's always... A, that's, that's a bit of a misrepresentation. As, as, as an atheist, here's what I would have said about that. It's a bit of a misrepresentation because the, the reality of it is is that I... I'm not fighting against something I don't believe is true, and that, that would be silly, you know, making a big stink about whether or not there's pink unicorns. Uh, but what we're really saying is, as an atheist, I would have said, no, it's just that that this false view that there is a God, especially a God like you guys believe in, is destructive. I'm not against the false God. I know he's, he's false. He doesn't exist. I'm against people who believe in a false God that is ruining the planet, that is ruining Christian, that is ruining uh, the, uh, civilization. And that's the view a lot of atheists hold, is that they'll say this is the source of all misogyny and racism and homophobia and bigotry. And, and they, they'll, this, is, this is bad for humans. And because they think that that comes from Christianity, they are against this Christian God. In other words, they're against this make-believe thing that you folks have created that is the cause of everything wrong in the world. So that's what they're saying when they are making this kind of a claim, right? It's not that they, uh, they're they arguing against something that doesn't exist. They're arguing against this notion that you hold that they think is destructive. So tell me about the family that you grew up in. Well, I mean, my, my dad's a very committed, you know, we all end up kind of uh, looking at, at our dad at some point, either as an example of what we want to be or an example of what we want to avoid. My dad was a police officer for nearly 30 years, and I was uh, in, raised up to think of him as a kind of super, like a superhero. We, he didn't raise me. I, he divorced my mom when I was very young, but I ended up, sure enough, back in his profession, even though I have a master's degree in architecture and a bachelor's degree in design before I became a police officer, I mean, just these kinds of things call you because you get a sense that that's what it is to be a man, right? Mm -hmm. They look at your dad, at least, as some example of that. Mm -hmm. So here I was back in, in, in the academy, and 
got out of the academy. I was in my uh, 20s and ended up working in investigations pretty quick. Became a senior investigator pretty early and then uh, eventually um, was working all kinds of cases when I was about 35 and first stepped foot in a church. And I was really there because my wife wanted to, to go and she thought, well, is this something we should raise our kids in only because it seems like it would be some structure for them, not having really any idea what that would mean, but just kind of wondering, is this something you do as a new parent? Do you do you in, include this? <laughs> this? I would have said no. Uh, because I wasn't raised that way. And my dad's a very committed atheist, but he would have, I think he would have said, let's go because he thinks it's also useful, even though it's not true. And he's always felt that way. He's always felt this is anything is useful. I mean, if you, if you're a committed Buddhist, good for you. If you're a committed Mormon, like a, a second wife, good for you. I've gone the same way. That's why I went to church the same as my dad would go. And I found myself in a church that provoked me to take a look at more deeply at the story of Jesus because the pastor said he was smart. And I thought, okay, well, if he's so smart, let's see what's so smart about him. So I bought a Bible and I started to examine it using all the tools that you know I had at my disposal, which were just kind of like, how do you know that an eyewitness account about something in the past is true? How do you test an eyewitness? You know, I don't trust eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses are incredibly unreliable and can often say things that are contradictory that aren't true. They can lie, just have a motive to lie. So we test eyewitnesses. But once we test them, then we use them because we've tested them. So there's a process by which you test an eyewitness. I just decided to approach the Gospels the same way, and, and that's what I describe in Cold Case Christianity, that here's what the rules are for testing eyewitnesses, and here's how I applied them, and here's what I discovered. And at the end of that, I was stuck with the story about a risen Christ that I thought was reliable, that, would, that I could trust. Mm -hmm. And without even knowing what the Gospel was, I did believe the Gospels were telling me the truth about the resurrection, and that changes everything. What was there a point along the way where you kind of saw the road signs and how they were headed and you thought to yourself, uh oh, I might be in trouble here? Mm, to be honest, I, I didn't. People always ask, was there like an aha moment? There really isn't in a cumulative case. So mm -hmm. I, I work cases later in my career. Everything I did was cold cases and mm -hmm. cold cases are cumulative, like death by a thousand paper cuts. It's a bunch of small things that are just overwhelming when you consider them in total. And, and that's what was happening for me. It took a little while, I mean, a better part of a year to, to look at all the evidence for this. And I was very intentional about it, very committed to the process. And at the, you know, at some point it is overwhelming and then you go, okay, now I'm here. Now that does not make you a Christian. That just gives you belief that the gospels are telling you the truth about Jesus. It's not until you read the Bible to, to read the new Testament, to see what it says about you, not what it says about Jesus that will get you to a point where you're willing to look at your need for a savior. If you don't think you're who the Bible describes you, if you don't believe in the kind of the enigma, the fallen nature of human beings, and a lot of atheists don't, just don't. They think that, that, that the environment has corrupted what are innately good animals, beings, humans, hmm. you know, that are corrupted by our environment. That's why so much effort is put to change systems. Because it's a, it's a belief that, that, that you're not a fallen creature who will actually corrupt any system, that yeah, instead you're an innately good creature that is corrupted by the systems. And so I think in the end, I would have held more of that second view, even though, practically speaking, I knew better. I mean, I'm a parent. I've got kids. I could see that from a very early age. you got to teach your kids how not to be selfish and impatient and and all the things that drive us crazy about babies, right? So, 
So I think at the at some point for me, what changed was I started to read the Bible for what it said about me. And when I recognized, oh, it's true. Well, I'd already done the heavy lifting to know what I trusted it because mm -hmm. I'd tested it to see what it said about Jesus. And once you trust it over there, you can trust it over here. So that's, you know, my, my, my entry into this is, was pretty reasoned, but it, but it came by reasoning to a point of humility. You know, I think Spurgeon said that the best way to get to humility is to simply to make a self-assessment that's accurate. <laughs> you know, once you, you actually look at yourself and realize, hey, I am not who I thought I was, um, and you have to have a moment of humility, and then you realize, yeah, there's a God, and I'm not him, and I'm not even close. But that's when you realize you have a need for a Savior, and that's where I eventually found myself. Were you always an analytical, investigative-type person, even as a kid? Oh, absolutely. I mean, oh, as a kid, I don't, I don't know if I was so much. Maybe I, I don't really. I haven't really thought about it. But certainly, you can't do the the job on on duty. Mm -hmm. Every one of these guys who I work with now, I work with a lot of police officers in through Billy Graham Association's uh, Leap program. It's Law Enforcement Appreciation Program, where we just do a lot of marriage resiliency training up in Alaska over the summer. We do six weeks with couples that have suffered uh, critical incident trauma, and are now struggling in their marriage. And I always tell these guys and gals that these we're all case makers. We're case makers by profession and by in, uh, kind of inclination. So when a patrol officer sees something that's suspicious, he's in his mind already formulating the case that he will eventually put to paper. And then he makes the stop. And then he starts thinking about the case. Or, and then he's in the car. Then he's, all, he's making a case from the first point of contact all the way through to the arrest. And then eventually expresses that case on paper to a district attorney and then in front of a jury, ultimately. So we are case makers by nature. And that's why it was so frustrating for me to talk to Christians back in the day who were police officers. We had a couple on our agency, but they, they were not case makers when it came to their faith. That was something they were willing to almost not look at the case. Like they were ignorant of the case. And but they still believe, which is fine. But they're not they're not persuasive to someone like me who's like, really? So you can give me fifteen reasons why this guy's are a robbery suspect, but you can't give me five ways to defend the New Testament? Like what? Who are you? <laughs> are you a case maker or not? And and so I think a lot of us, you know, it, and there's a lot. Let me tell you, if you haven't watched what's going on on online with their you know, with the young people, I mean, they're, they're, the world around us makes a case, whether you can trust it or not. Here's why you should do this. Here's why you should do that. Here's why you should accept this view. Here's and it's like this is grounded in the science. Okay, well this is fine. We, we have to be able to respond as, 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 as older Christians to our young people that, yeah, we get that kind of way of looking at the world, but I don't want to believe something that's untrue either. Mm -hmm. So how do I know this is true? And in the end, I, it has to be an objective kind of truth, right? This is not just my preference. This is not just true for Jim or my truth. It's the truth about God. And, and that's what we have to be able to express to our kids. Visiting with Jay Warner Wallace on this week's edition of the Dan Scott Show. I, I want to go back to your your hunt for the evidence before we talk about marrying everything together. And you said there was not an aha moment, but whether you're building a case or in this particular instance as you're trying to find the evidence to determine whether or not a risen Christ is real, you're laying these building blocks one on top of the other, were, were there one or two pieces of significant evidence that you just simply could not overlook? Well, I mean, it, what it comes down to is the evidence for Christianity is uh, 
are going to rise or fall on the strength of the eyewitness accounts we call the Gospels. So if they are reliable, then we must accept what they say. You might argue, well, they're reliable about a few things, but not about everything. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about can we trust what the Gospels tell us about the resurrection? It all comes down to that one event that changes history. It's the resurrection. It's not about anything else. I mean, the first and most primary thing for me was the resurrection. Now, if the resurrection is true, if there's a man who can defeat death, I don't know why we would we would argue about all the other minor things that he might do in terms of miraculous events, because if there's a being that created everything in the universe from nothing, a Genesis 1 kind of being, well, that being, I'm sure, can inter interact in his own creation so that all the miracles of the New Testament are just small potato miracles compared to everything from nothing. So I think in the end, I just needed to know, was this a reliable uh, account? And so I, it, that's all I focused on is why would I try? There's four ways we test eyewitness accounts. We test them by number one, were they really there to see what they said they saw? Two, can they be corroborated in some way? Three, uh, did they change their story over time? And four, do they possess a reason to lie, a bias or a motive that would cause them to lie? And if I can check the box on all four of those, then I can get comfortable with my witnesses. And that is what we did. With, uh, I described this in Cold Case Christianity. And it takes some time, right? How do you know that the gospel authors are writing within the generation of eyewitnesses? If they're writing in the second or third century, they can't be eyewitnesses. They're writing too late in history. That's the claim of a lot of atheists, that these are late gospels by anonymous people who weren't really there. And Jesus never really lived. Or if he did, he wasn't who they say they are. Okay. That's what I needed to know. Is it early enough? Two, can it be corroborated in some way? Well, there's lots of ways of doing that, both internally and externally. When someone makes a statement, it has to be internally consistent, logically consistent, it has to also match the environment that he's describing. And three, do they change their story? Was there a simpler version of Jesus that got exaggerated over the years? Four, did the disciples have some reason to lie? What did they get out of it if they were going to lie? So those are the things you look at when you're testing an eyewitness. Not that hard, really. These are the things we instruct jurors to do. When they're listening to eyewitness testimony, I simply took that approach with uh, the gospel accounts. You know, th this question just popped into my head, and it's something I should have thought of before we started the interview and, and, and actually did some research on it. So forgive me for just thinking about it. But have you and Lee Strobel talked? Because you've done the same thing, but from two different angles. You did it from the police investigative side. He did it from a journalistic investigative side. But you came to the same conclusion. Yes. As a matter of fact, Lee wrote the foreword for the book. Yeah. And I, I met Lee at a conference um, probably maybe two years or a year or two years before um, I wrote the book. And I was just doing youth group stuff because I was a youth pastor. And he happened to be at a conference speaking. I was there also. And he approached me because he was writing a fiction book involving uh, a homicide investigation. And he wanted to get some insight on how this might, and he heard I was a homicide detective, so he, he sought me out, and we talked a little bit, and then afterwards, I sent him a note and said, hey, I got this idea to write this book that kind of traces how my investigation of the evidence went, and he says, well, I'll write the foreword. So he jumped in right away. He's been very gracious. We've become very good friends over the years. I've done a couple of the Case for Miracles. He, I was one of the interviews in that book. So, so there's lots of stuff that we've done. It's very similar. You're right. I mean, a lot of this is now I was unlike, I wasn't, he, Lee was trying to prove Leslie was wrong. Like his wife, his mm -hmm. wife became a believer and he was trying to prove her wrong. I, I wasn't really, um, I, I thought this was so ludicrous that there was no point in trying to prove it wrong. Uh, that wasn't my thing as I, well, this isn't this. And Susie wasn't a Christian. She, we were together for 18 years before either one of us became Christians. 
So, so for us, it wasn't that so much. It was that, th that this pastor said that Jesus had wise teaching. And I wanted to know what the wise teaching was. So I bought the book just to read what is so smart about Jesus. Like, what did he say? I also, you know, when I was a high schooler, I remember I had a sociology teacher who was Baha'i. And he said that Baha'u'llah had a lot of wise things to say. So I bought, or he maybe he gave me a volume of Baha'u'llah's teaching. And I read, that was, it's like fortune cookie stuff. It's awesome. But it doesn't mean that Baha'u'llah is, is, is divine. So I just thought I could read the, the wise teaching of Jesus in a similar way. Uh, but but for me, what got me interested was the fact that there are variations between the accounts, variations that might seem at first to be absolutely contradictory. You know, what what does what did so-and-so do in one version? It sounds slightly different than in another version. How many Marys are at the tomb and how many angels are at the tomb? And does Mary touch Jesus? Does she not touch Jesus? I mean, these accounts feel like if you read different accounts, you're going to come up with different conclusions. So this is so common of eyewitnesses when they observe a crime that I've constantly, we're going to, we're going to canvas the neighborhood. We're going to get every eyewitness statement on paper that I'm going to get them as the investigating officer as the IO. And I'm reading through these accounts. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Well, lucky for me, I can go back and call all these witnesses and I can try to resolve the differences. But in a cold case, you can't often do that because these people have been dead for a number of years. So I can't go back and reconcile what appear to be contradictions. They're not contradictions. I know they're not, but it's just because, you know, I can't go back and do another interview to sort it all out. Well, this is what you see in the Gospels. And because these were not sorted out, because they nobody had come in a century after the fact and cleaned them up, you know, so that there wouldn't be any doubt about this going forward. That, that to me, spoke of this is testable. This is testable in the same way you can test other eyewitness accounts. And that's what provoked me to start. So... Tell me about the day that the evidence that you tracked down and reading the Gospels and understanding that you needed a Savior. Tell me about the day that those things came together. Well, I remember I was working on surveillance uh, in, a, in a local neighborhood, and I was not on the eye. Uh, our guy was sitting down, sitting still, the guy we were watching. And he was a drug addict as well as a burglar, and he was just doing drugs that day. So he was just at his house doing drugs. So we're all waiting for him to move. And um, so I'm reading through Romans and First Corinthians. I don't know how many times I'd read that, but it struck me that that the natural man that Paul was talking about, and it struck me that, that, that the fact that none of us pursue God, that we all think we are God in some way, and all of us are sinners who are in need of a Savior. That was so clear in Romans and so clear in 1 Corinthians that I realized that that's, he's talking about me. And I remember going home and telling Susie, yeah, I get it. This is what I think, this is where I think I am. And and so, you know, for us, I don't, like, I don't have, I tell people all the time, people say, well, what's your testimony? Okay, I, I, I don't, okay, I don't share my testimony typically because I don't think it matters. I don't think anyone's testimony matters. That's just me because I've got six brothers and sisters raised LDS who can tell you some beautiful testimonies and it doesn't make anything true. What makes it true now, lucky for me, my testimony is basically that I investigated the case until I determined it was true. I can share the investigation with you, but I, I didn't become a Christian because I, I was looking for a change in my life. I, nothing was broken. I needed to fix and in my in the sense of my marriage, had a great career, have great kids. 
Um, now, I was definitely a fallen sinner in need of a savior. There's no doubt about that. But but sometimes people will get to the end of themselves, and now they're completely homeless and drug addicts that finally, at the very bottom, they pull themselves up, and the gospel does amazing work in their lives. And God does amazing. It, it's something different for me. It was it wasn't. And for a lot of I think for a lot of cops I work with, like they need a different way in. And I always say that I'm not a Christian because it works for me because it doesn't often work for me in the sense that if you think it's going to make you the most popular person on your agency, probably not going to happen. If you think it's going to get you elected to an office, probably not going to happen anymore. If you think it's going to get you that job, probably not. Listen, Mormonism, if you're a Mormon and you need Salt Lake City, Mormonism probably works for you because a lot of your em potential employers are looking for Mormon employees. But it's not the case anymore uh, nationally for us as Christians. We're going to become more and more scrutinized as this worldview becomes less and less popular. Mm -hmm. But I'm a Christian because it's true, and I'd much rather be in an inconvenient truth than in a convenient lie. So I think what happened for me is, yeah, does, is, is my life different now? If you ask my wife, she'd say it's like night and day. But But that is not what moved me. What moved me was, this is true. And once you know it's true, it's the most important truth you're ever going to know. And then you are compelled to move and, and do something about it. But see, isn't that the great thing about how God works, though? Because there's no one way that he reaches people. My That's my right. my dad was and still is a pastor and a preacher. He's 75 years old and, and still going. And I grew up in a Christian home, and I wandered away, and I made a mess of my life and almost lost everything that I had, and finally, you know, 11 years ago, realized that I needed Christ in my life, or I was probably going to die, and I was going to lose my wife and everything else. There's no one way as far as how God gets your attention, but there's only one way to God, and that's through Christ. How you get to Christ is may be unique, but you've got to get to Christ to get to God. Well, no, no doubt about it. Now, now, once you're there, once you've made this decision, I talk about being a two-decision Christian, once you've made the decision that you're in need of a Savior, and that Jesus is the Savior, and that you embrace Him as your Savior, that's the first decision. But Scripture tells us we're all called to make a second decision, a decision to be able to defend what we believe. When someone says, well, why, why is it you, you behave differently? And you might just say, well, because for me, this is what happened for me. And that's fine. But you, I think you sense right now in the culture why this is not sufficient. Because, because now we've based every truth in a subjective foundation. Well, why is, why, what, how do you claim this gender identity? Because this is what I feel. Everything. Why, why is that true? It works for me. If it works for you, great. This works for me. But that, but that basically means is you're fine where you are. And, and when we take that view of truth, you're just fine wherever you are. But we know that the, the gospel is more than you're just fine wherever you are. The gospel is the cure, the one objective cure for what is killing us mm -hmm. spiritually. And it's not just a cure or my cure, it's the cure. And so, so then the question becomes, well, how do I defend it objectively? Like, how do I make a case for this? If, if you said that, hey, I, I've got tuberculosis, and the doctor says, well, I can give you isoniazid. Well, I think I want Tylenol or NyQuil. I don't want to take isoniazid. Well, I hope that doctor would sit down and explain to you why, even though you might prefer the other stuff, it's not going to cure your TB. We have to be able to help people understand that this is, this is actually true. And most of us are not equipped to do that yet. 
How not you, even to the level that we're equipped to explain why our hobby is worth in, uh, engaging or why you should live in our state or our city or mm-hmm. why you should support our team or why you know this sport is is better than that sport we can we can have those we are prepared to have all those conversations right. but we are not prepared tell me why you think the gospel is true because someone's going to say well because it changed my life well the book of mormon changed mine okay where are we now what what's the next part of that conversation look like and and it might just be well yeah this changed my life well this 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 philosopher changed my life so so wh- where are we now and that's the question I think we have to ask ourselves is, are we equipped to do that second thing? Which, by the way, is not an option. You know, it's like Paul says, some of you are pastors and some of you are evangelists and some of you are teachers, which means that clearly some of you aren't any of those things. Some of you are not called as evangelists or Paul wouldn't use that expression. But Peter doesn't give you that option. He doesn't say that some of you need to be ready to give the hope you have for, the, you know, for your faith in Christ. He says all of you. That's something that we all have to do. As a matter of fact, we've created this position in the church called Christian apologist, which was never meant to be a position. It was meant to be an attribute of every believing Christian. And instead, we've said, well, let's just, I, I couldn't do it. Let me let me get you Jim Wallace's book. Well, I, I don't want you just to get Jim Wallace's book. I want us to know this as though we love it, as though it matters to us. And that means we have to take a step. And yes, it's a step that's going to require some work, but you've already put that kind of effort into something. It's just a matter of realigning it as a priority. Yeah, I'm just so grateful to be part of a church that's constantly doing things like that. We're part of a 2-7 group right now that is is taking, taking those steps to do everything from memorizing verses to being more confident in sharing your faith and defending faith when when people challenge you and, and right, right. I, I hope and pray that more churches out there are starting to do things like that because as you said the culture around us is getting more and more uh, aggressive in the other way but you know when I I get the chance occasionally to speak and I spoke at a church yesterday and I always remind people that none of this should be surprising because Jesus warned us this was going to happen in the scriptures he told us the world hated him first and it's going to hate us and he told us in John sixteen thirty three that in this world, you will have tribulation. He didn't say it might happen. He said it's going to happen. So right. none of this should really be a surprise. No, exactly. And we act as though, but that's just, there's a lot of, of theology out there. I mean, part of the problem is that the church isn't even the church in many places. And so we're going to have to kind of take care of and clean our own house first, right? Like what what is it that we believe and, and what we believe matters. And and so if, if God is just simply the source of blessing, um, and then you're going to start eventually, like Job, asking yourself the question, well, why am I not being blessed? If, if our expectations are correct, then you know that even in, the, in the, the, the Beatitudes that Jesus tells us, you know, blessed are those, you're going to be persecuted. When you're going to be persecuted and people are going to lie about you and because of me. And they're going to say all kinds of bad things about you because of me. And that's not a, a, a if, it's a when. So, so we have to be ready to, and this is in the Beatitudes. So we're going to have to be ready to to be that light on the hill, right? That hot, the city on the hill, or that light that shines. Um, so I think this is part of what we're called to do. But I don't, but, but I still don't see many of us equipped yet to do it. And that's why I think that most of us who are working as casemakers in Christianity, Christian or Christian apologists, are really trying to figure out like how do I help the church rather than just have another product for the church. Mm-hmm. So, so what we tried to do, you know, we just this is the 10th anniversary of of this book I wrote 10 years ago, 
and we've written nine since. But but this is a book that I think is is kind of known for this book. And but I want to turn a corner with it. Like how do I? So what we did this time is we said, look, we've completely updated the book. It's a it's a most people who read it and have already reviewed it will tell you that it's a different book than it was. It's the book I wanted to write ten years ago. So here it is. But I thought, well, how do we change the direction of the church a little bit? So what we're doing is we're saying, look, anyone who buys the book. If you go to coldcasechristianitybook.com, coldcasechristianitybook.com, you'll see there that there is a 30-session casemakers course. It's 10 and a half hours of content with all the PDF files to assemble the notebooks. You can earn a certificate. Just get the book. It's free. Submit for the, for the course. We'll send it to you. It's 30 sessions. And if you really wanted to learn the case from objective truth all the way through to the impact of Jesus on culture, everything I've ever written or spoken about publicly is in that course. It's the same course I do at Gateway Seminary. It's just the course I just made it visual and it's all available for free because we want people to take the step. There's a 410 slide PowerPoint that comes with that. There's over 50 Bible inserts. You can actually study the case and stick it in your Bible and have it ready to share with people. What are we going to do? Like, how can we move people? And 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 you should first take advantage of the things that are free. Mm-hmm before you pay for a course i mean so so this is my hope is that if we if we create these materials that people will actually use them coldcasechristianitybook.com it's the updated the 10 year anniversary of the book and all of these materials are free if you buy the updated version of the book correct that's right yeah i saw that on twitter i wanted to make sure i was going to ask you about that so i'm glad that you brought it in before we wrap up the other question i have being so open about your faith how are you still getting work on dateline and uh, all these other true crime shows because uh, you know a lot of times christians don't get these jobs anymore well i think that that you know all the time i was doing the dateline cases the the producer is actually a, a um, an endorser of my books and and that producer, I think, is open-handed at best, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know that that producer is a Christian, but they are open-handed because they saw that the, the whatever I brought to the case, they respected. Mm-hmm. So they were willing to kind of put up with my person. Now, I, I think the, the, the world is moving. I don't know that that's going to be acceptable because what's happening is is that now it used to be that people would say, I'm not a big fan of, of Christians or religion, but I, that Jesus guy seemed like he was pretty good. That's only because they don't know what Jesus taught about right. marriage or sexuality or identity or sanctity of life. And if they knew what Jesus taught in those areas, I often wonder if they would still be a fan of Jesus. Because it seems like what the biggest push now is not so much... It's People don't like the teaching of the Master anymore. And and I think or they only like a percentage of it or some small percentage of it. So they're they're trying to either redact what it is Jesus taught or change what they taught, what he taught, he taught re, kind of re, reassemble it in some way. And, and so I do think that as we go forward, it will be harder for those of us who are open Christians to, um, to, to be able to operate in a world that is skeptical, because they're going to see it not as so much, well, you know, what I'm, I'm really interested, Dan, in, listen, in watching, like, you know, football season just started. And so you see that a lot of football players are really outspoken Christians. And that seems to still be an area that that the culture is not, the culture is still willing to embrace a football player they like, who happens to be an outspoken Christian. I don't know that that'll continue for the rest of us though. So, so I think in the end, get ready. I think we have to be ready to make a decision about whether that stuff still matters to us. Do we want those opportunities? My agency would still 
embrace a Christian who wants to work cold cases, but I'm not sure you'll see in all my Dateline episodes, we never, the only, the only one small piece did Keith Morrison at the very end on the online video. Um, they do some online extras mm-hmm. in one of the online extras. Did he mention that I was a Christian? But nothing on the um, network broadcast and the legacy kind of media, you would you ever know what my worldview is? Because any conversation we would have about that, and we might record 10 hours of content, right? there's only going to be probably four minutes of my content on the screen with him. Mm-hmm. So, so you're not going to get to those kinds of issues for sure. But they still keep bringing you back. Your work is out there for people to see, and people can connect the dots and say, wait a minute. I've heard about that guy's book. Let me go see. And then they can start putting two and two together doing their own evidential hunt. Well, yeah. In hindsight, that's one of the reasons why, you know, you don't get paid to do Dateline. Yeah. Dateline is just you're advancing the cause of your agency because if we could keep uh, our high profile on media, my agency would, would continue to fund our small team of cold case detectives. Right. So it was very selfish reasons, really, in some ways, we're trying just to keep funded. Um, and a lot of that, if your mayor sees that there's a positive spin on something that his agents, their agency is doing, they're more likely to say, okay, we can budget that again next year. So, so that's a lot of the reasons why we, we even get support within the agency. But yeah, so people can connect the dots. So I'm always, always grateful. I, I always gave time to that, knowing that there was always an off chance that the gospel could be heard by somebody who uh, might c- come to it by way of these Dayline episodes. Outstanding. You want to tell people one more time about the update to the book and everything they get and how they can get it? Yeah, it's, it's just you can see our website. We've got two websites where we post regularly. Uh, one is called coldcasechristianity.com, and that's a website where I try to post three times a week. And that's the, stuff, that's the kind of free stuff that I hope people take advantage of, because that's the stuff that really will advance what you believe about Christianity, give you confidence if you are a Christian, if you're seeking, and give you some reason to think of this might be true. Um, and the other flip of that, so that's a Christianity looked at through a detective's lens. Uh, detective work or law enforcement looked at through a Christian lens. We do that at uh, thinbluelife.com, thinbluelife.com. That's for police officers. So those are the two places you can find me online, and you'll see at the top of those how you can get the free case makers course. You'll see that at the top of coldcasechristianity.com. And you can do like I do, along with 185,000-plus of his closest friends. Follow him on the artist formerly known as Twitter, now on X, at Wallace. So um, a lot of ways you can follow what this man is doing. Thank you so much for your time today. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. I appreciate you. And I can't recommend enough that you check out the update to his book, Cold Case Christianity. You can get it anywhere you you buy books these days. And follow him on X, formerly Twitter, at Wallace. Let's step aside for a very quick break, and we'll come back with a couple of minutes to wrap up this week's edition of The Dan Scott Show. Teenage boys and young men today are in crisis. Statistics show that a home without a father or male role model present is the single biggest indicator of poverty, behavior issues, drug and alcohol abuse, criminal activity, and yes, imprisonment. At Grand Slam Ministries, one of our core missions is developing a mentorship program to teach boys how to become strong Christian men and then teach those men to be the biblical husbands, fathers, and church and community leaders the Bible calls us to be. We need your prayers, we need your ideas, and we need your support. Visit our website, GrandSlamMinistries.org, to find out more about our mentorship mission and prayerfully consider how you may be able to assist us 
Again, that website is grandslamministries.org. Want to see a listing of our affiliates? Check out videos or listen to past shows and explore our archives? It's all available at our website, danscottshow.org. And now, back to the show. We are back with a very quick final segment to wrap up this 45th edition of the Dan Scott Show. Thanks again to Jay Warner Wallace. The book is Cold Case Christianity. It's the new updated version, and it's available wherever you get your books. I highly suggest you do it. It's a fantastic resource. Hey, listen, as we close things out today, I just want to remind you that uh, 501c3 nonprofits need your support, and that's what Grand Slam Ministries is, and that's who presents the Dan Scott Show. The idea for the show is to be as much listener-supported as possible, and that means that we are asking you to prayerfully consider making a gift. You can go to our website, danscottshow.org, and access uh, the Grand Slam Ministries page from there to find out more about who we are and what we do. And then there's a tab that you can click to make uh, a monthly or a one-time donation. Our goal initially is to get 200 people giving $25 a month and 200 people giving $10 a month. And if we can get there, the show will grow well beyond what it is now and we'll be able to start funding our core missions of mentorship and helping children. We're already doing some things in those areas on a very small basis, but we want to grow. And in order to do that, besides chasing down grants, which we're doing, we also have to have your support. So prayerfully consider making a gift, danscottshow.org, all the information and the way to do so is there. Or if you want to send an old-fashioned check, Grand Slam Ministries. P.O. Box 35, Central South Carolina, 29630. I don't personally talk about it as much. I will bring it up occasionally and just ask you to prayerfully consider helping us out. Listen, thank you for joining us. Lee Strobel will be our guest next week. Until then, I'm Dan Scott saying God bless you and so long, everybody. 